European Heart Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 37, Issue 21, Focus Issue on Heart Failure, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Luscher. Frontiers in Heart Failure, Assessment, Risk Factors, and Novel Genetic and Cell-Based Therapies. Heart failure is commonly divided into two entities, i.e. heart failure with preserved and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Currently, left ventricular ejection fraction is the central parameter used for the diagnosis and management of patients with heart failure, but has been questioned in various clinical settings. Although a good predictor of adverse outcomes when below 45%, ejection fraction is less useful as a marker of risk as it approaches normal values. This focus issue on heart failure begins with a review beyond ejection fraction, an integrated approach for assessment of cardiac structure and function in heart failure, by Scott Solomon from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, USA. He points out that as a measure of cardiac function, ejection fraction has several important limitations. Calculated as the stroke volume divided by end diastolic volume, the estimation of ejection fraction is generally based on geometric assumptions that allow for assessment of volumes based on linear or two-dimensional measurements. Left ventricular ejection fraction is both preload and afterload dependent, can change substantially based on loading conditions, is only moderately reproducible, and represents only a single measure of risk in patients with heart failure. Moreover, the relationship between ejection fraction and risk is modified by hypertension, diabetes, and renal function. A more complete evaluation and understanding of left ventricular function in patients with heart failure requires a comprehensive assessment. The authors conceptualize an integrative approach which incorporates measures of left and right ventricular function, left ventricular geometry, left atrial size, and valvular function as well as non-imaging factors, such as clinical parameters and biomarkers, providing a comprehensive and more accurate prediction of risk in heart failure. Although the treatment of heart failure has made enormous progress over the last decades, with the introduction of ACE inhibitors alone or combined with neprilysin inhibitors, beta blockers mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, and more recently cardiac resynchronization therapy on top of guideline-recommended medication, with or without an ICD, all approaches remain essentially palliative in nature. Gene therapy has emerged as a potentially powerful tool in targeting the molecular mechanisms implicated in heart failure. Refinements in vector technology including the development of recombinant adeno-associated vectors, have allowed for safe, long-term, and efficient gene transfer to the myocardium. These advancements, coupled with evolving delivery techniques, have placed gene therapy as a viable therapeutic option for patients with heart failure. The progress made in this area is reviewed by Roger Hajar and colleagues from the Mount Sinai in New York in their article Gene Therapy for the Treatment of Heart Failure, Promise Postponed. The authors note that after much promise in early phase clinical trials, the more recent larger clinical trials have shown disappointing results, thus forcing the field to re-evaluate current vectors, delivery systems, targets, and endpoints.
The authors provide an updated review of current cardiac gene therapy programs that have been or are being translated into clinical trials. Another approach in the treatment of post-infarction heart failure is regenerative therapies, mainly using autologous bone marrow-derived mononuclear or even embryonic stem cells. A major limitation of intracoronary application of such cells is that homing is profoundly reduced in patients with post-infarction heart failure compared to patients with acute myocardial infarction. However, Early pilot and also randomized controlled trials have demonstrated significant improvements in overall cardiac function. In a clinical research paper, improved outcome with repeated intracoronary injection of bone marrow-derived cells with a registry, rationale for the randomized outcome trial, repeat. Birgit Asmus from the Johann Wolfgang Goethe University in Frankfurt, Germany, aimed to quantify a potential mortality risk reduction and reduced hospitalization in order to provide data for a prospective outcome trial. The results of an ongoing single-center registry, including 297 post-infarction heart failure patients, suggests that repeated intracoronary application of autologous bone marrow-derived cells is associated with a better two-year survival compared to a single application with a two-year survival of 94% and 84% respectively. Likewise, mortality is lower at two-year follow-up compared to the mortality estimated by the Seattle Heart Failure Model in patients receiving repeated cell application with an observed mortality of 6.4% and a predicted mortality of 16.2%. Although the trend persisted at three-year follow-up, the mortality reduction was no longer significant. The authors conclude that repeated intracoronary administration of autologous bone marrow-derived cells appears to be associated with improved clinical outcome compared to single treatment, which may provide the rationale for the multicenter randomized REPEAT trial. The paper is accompanied by an editorial by Atta Befar from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, USA. Besides common factors, such as hypertension and coronary artery disease, tumors, but also chemotherapy in cancer patients, has emerged as an important cause of heart failure. Indeed, although adjuvant treatment for early breast cancer is associated with improved survival, it comes with an increased risk of cardiotoxicity. In an AHA fast-track Prevention of Cardiac Dysfunction During Adjuvant Breast Cancer Therapy, PRADA, a 2 times 2 factorial, randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind clinical trial of candesartan and metoprolol. Torbjorn Omland and colleagues from the Arkeshus University Hospital in Nordbyhagen, Norway, tested the hypothesis that concomitant therapy with the angiotensin receptor blocker candesartan or the beta blocker metoprolol will alleviate the decline in left ventricular ejection fraction associated with anthracycline-containing regimens with or without trastuzumab and radiation. In a 2 times 2 factorial, randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind trial, they assigned 130 adult women with early breast cancer to the candesartan selexatil metoprolol succinate, or matching placebos, in parallel with anti-cancer therapy. 
The overall decline in left ventricular ejection fraction was 2.6% with placebo and 0.8% with candesartan, which, in the intention-to-treat analysis, was significant. Metaprolol had no effect. The authors conclude that in patients treated with early breast cancer with a juvent anthracycline containing regimens, with or without trastuzumab and radiation, concomitant treatment with cardazartan provides some protection against early decline in global left ventricular function. The paper is accompanied by a critical editorial by Peter van der Meer from the University Medical Center Groningen in the Netherlands. Heart failure is associated with loss of weight, muscle strength, and fragility. The mechanisms leading to cachexia in heart failure are not fully understood. In the third paper, Intestinal Congestion and Right Ventricular Dysfunction, a link with appetite loss, inflammation, and cachexia in chronic heart failure, Miroslava Valentova from the University of Medicine Göttingen in Germany evaluated signs of intestinal congestion and their relationship to cachexia in 165 patients with chronic heart failure with left ventricular ejection fraction equal or lower than 40%. Overall, 18% of the patients were cachectic. Among echocardiographic parameters, the combination of right ventricular dysfunction and elevated right atrial pressure provided the best discrimination between cachectic and non-cachectic patients. Cachectic patients compared to non-cachectic had a higher prevalence of postprandial fullness, appetite loss, and abdominal discomfort. Abdominal ultrasound showed a larger bowel wall thickness in the entire colon and terminal ileum in cachectic compared to non-cachectic patients. Bowel wall thickness correlated positively with gastrointestinal symptoms, high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, right atrial pressure, and truncal fat-free mass, the latter serving as a marker of the fluid content. Furthermore, bowel wall thickness was associated with cachexia, even after adjusting for cardiac function, inflammation, and stages of heart failure. Among the cardiac parameters, only right atrial pressure remains significantly associated with cachexia. The authors conclude that cardiac cachexia is associated with intestinal congestion, irrespective of heart failure stage and cardiac function. Gastrointestinal discomfort, appetite loss, and pro-inflammatory activation provide probable mechanisms by which intestinal congestion may trigger cardiac cachexia. However, larger studies are required to clarify the intrinsic nature of this relationship, as outlined in an editorial by Stefan Felix from the University Hospital in Greifswald in Germany. Respiratory patterns are predictive of outcome in many cardiovascular conditions. A third paper, Nocturnal Hypoxemia, is associated with increased mortality in stable heart failure patients, by Olaf Oldenburg and colleagues from the Ruhr University Bochum in Bad Oeynhausen, Germany, investigated the prognostic value of sleep-disordered breathing in a large cohort of patients with heart failure with reduced left ventricular function, or HFREF, with a focus on the role of nocturnal hypoxemia. The single-center prospective cohort study 
enrolled patients with chronic stable HFREF and stadium NYHA2 or higher in guideline-based treatment undergoing polygraphy to determine the apnea-hypopnea index in 963 patients over more than seven years. At baseline, 58% had moderate to severe sleep-disordered breathing. During follow-up, 49.8% of the patients died. Mortality rates were 8.1 per 100 person years in patients with no or mild sleep-disordered breathing, but 12.2 per 100 person years in those with moderate to severe sleep-disordered breathing. The apnea-hypopnea index was significantly associated with time to death from any cause, but was no longer significant after adjustment for confounding factors. T90 was significantly associated with time to death from any cause, even after adjustment for confounding factors. The risk of death increased by 16.1% per one hour of T90. Five-year survival probabilities for patients in T90 quartiles 1, 2, 3, and 4 were 70%, 63%, 60%, and 50%, respectively. Thus, Hypoxemic burden is a robust and independent predictor of all-cause mortality in chronic stable HFREF patients. Whether or not targeting nocturnal hypoxemia is associated with beneficial effects on mortality remains to be determined. The paper is accompanied by a thoughtful editorial by Martin Cowie from Imperial College London. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its readers.